0: I say this to people, conscience becomes a fierce pursuer. People who have lived that life, unless you are a complete, total psychopath, which, I, which, I, which I, I mean, I'm not an expert, but I believe a very, very small percentage of people actually are, unless you're a complete psychopath, you go away from these acts, and, and, and you, you do feel bad, and you do feel guilty, and, and it's sort of like, I look on it as a form of self-harm. You know you're 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 in so much pain when you're actually committing these acts yourself because these acts are acts of desperation.
1: Hi, I'm Naomi Murphy and this is the Locked Up Living podcast where we talk with a wide range of people about harsh aspects of institutional life.
2: We also explore some of the ways to overcome them and to grow and develop. I'm David Jones. So join us every Wednesday morning six o'clock uk time for a fresh podcast so today we're meeting with ray bishop ray is the author of outlaw which is a book based on his experiences growing up in a council estate in East london he and his friends were regularly involved with the police and uh, ray tells all about his early days of petty crime He was uh, dispatched to notoriously violent youth detention centres where he was further criminalised and he graduated with flying colours to a career in London's underworld as an armed robber, a drug smuggler and a people trafficker. And along the way he developed a serious addiction to cocaine and heroin uh, which he'll tell us all about in a minute. But uh, Ray... It also gives us a story of uh, his struggle and redemption, of coming back from rock bottom and learning lessons the hard way. Uh, He enrolled in a rigorous rehabilitation programme. In fact, he did that several times uh, and he managed to turn his life around. He went on to realise his childhood dream of becoming a successful uh, British boxing champion. Um, and he set up his own business and along the way he's also been advocating for others. So welcome Ray, good to meet you here. Lovely
0: to see you again David, thank you for having me on.
1: Great to meet you Ray. You Hi. too I'm Naomi. Pleased, really pleased that you've come on, thank you. And you've Pleasure. you've had such a, a, a rich colourful life, but I wondered if you could begin with um, give, giving us a little bit of an account of your early life, where you grew up. Tell us a
0: little bit about what's, what your childhood was like, that kind of thing. Well, yeah, I, I grew up in uh, Woolwich, south-east London, which which um, on, on the outskirts of the south of London. Um, I would never down-talk my area, you know, my my experience. Some great people come from there. But it was an area of, I would call, economic deprivation. It wasn't a rich borough of London. Uh, it was just a, a series of housing estates, basically, and um, I grew up on one of them. One of them housing estates in 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 like the seventies. Really, I'm a product of the seventies and eighties. So, yeah, quite challenging times. Yeah. Hmm.
2: So, in your book Outlaw, which of course you talk about some of that upbringing, you you come across as being very reflective about yourself uh, as a young person can you say a bit here about how you think you were as a young man
0: well you know i've 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 looked at this long and hard and being an author and like having had the 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 process of writing my own book i look back retrospectively a lot on my childhood and from the from doing therapy and and, and whatever else but you know it, I was never uh, a tough child. I was never a hard child. You know, I was a a bullied child. You know, I had, I had quite big ears when I was a kid, and kids can be so cruel. And I was bullied, and I was also bullied because uh, my father was sadly someone who suffered from alcoholism. Uh, my mother was an Irish immigrant. I had four siblings. We never had a lot. We were and. Um, I always felt less than all the other kids because we just didn't have a lot. And being at the bottom of the pile in the sibling order, you know, I had an older brother and older sisters, so I got my brother's hand-me-downs. I was very much that sort of child. I don't want to play the victim because I know a lot of people didn't have a lot. But I was painfully aware as a child that I didn't have a lot. And especially in the areas of... um, uh, sort of n- nurture and love, you know, that that was sort of non-existent. My dad sadly was quite a violent alcoholic, my mum was quite neurotic um, and I remember being hungry a lot as a child and the first way, first thing I, I'd done, first sort of criminal thing i ever done I remember when I was a young child was I, I stole a Mars bar from a newsagent's. I'd done that because I was quite hungry, (laughs) believe it or not, and I'm not not playing the poor me, but that was the reality, you know. I was quite hungry, and I I remember stealing a Mars bar, and um, it didn't feel good. I didn't feel that it was the right thing to do. I had a strong moral compass, you know. My mum was an Irish Catholic, and that was a very strict upbringing, and that sort of moral compass was installed in me from a young age, very strict, authoritarian... Uh if you do wrong you're going to hell. And I believed that, you know, so I wasn't uh you know, I don't believe I was born criminal or with criminal intent, you know. I think you know, like I say, my first criminal act I still remember and, and it didn't feel good. Yeah.
2: Yeah, so that that's interesting. You you mentioned that you were bullied, was that at school or was that around the estate or everywhere?
0: Well, yeah, I mean, at school, I ran the, ran the estate by the older kids. You know, when you when you grow up in an estate, it's not like growing up in semi-detached houses. I think everyone sort of lives on top of everyone, and I think that can be quite a damaging, toxic environment. I think everyone needs a bit of space, and 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 when you're a kid, you never ha- I never had that, so I didn't have a place of sanctuary. I shared the room with my brother as well, and my brother was quite. You know the sort of the toxicity in my family sort of trickled down. You know the bullied becomes the bully, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So my brother was quite harsh and bullying, and I shared a room with him. So I never felt I had a place of sanctuary indoors. And I remember on the estate as a young child feeling immense fear of all the other kids because I didn't have the father guidance. So I never knew what it meant to be a young man and uh, the other kids that did have fathers or seemed bigger and tougher, I just felt so inferior. I remember them feeling as well, just feeling so inferior and disconnected from, from everyone. And, and it was, it, you know, I was full of fear, full of fear. There was a lot of bullying that went on in my area in, in, at that period, you know. There was, for example, I went to a school, a Catholic school that was uh, two and a half miles from where I lived. And I used to have to walk to school, even when I was from the age of five or six. And there was two or three other schools that I used to have to pass. And sometimes when you pass these schools, there would be little gangs that would hang about, and they would be from a different estate, and they would go to that school. So you had to take the long way round to school, unless you yourself was in a pack. So sanctuary in numbers became the sort of norm and i think as i got older that's how i developed uh sort of progressed into sort of like a gang culture as it were on the estate because that's how you felt safe no no different than what we see today
1: it's interesting to hear you talking right because because that that kind of account is not dissimilar to many accounts that you hear with people who are in prison and something about how our society's set up that, you know, doesn't give all children the same chance, does it?
0: Most definitely not. And in my own circumstances, and again, without trying to play the blame game, this is retrospective, the odds were it was heavily stacked against us, people of my generation. And i tell you why. When I was 14, 15 years old, and we would hang around because why were we hanging around? Well, because there was no amenities for us. There, was, there wasn't a youth centre for us on our estate. And uh, we didn't have money to go places and do things, as it were. And we didn't have, I don't know about playing blame, we didn't have the parents that were taking us on holidays. and what. So we were just, you know, we hung around the estate. That made us targets for the local police. And this was a tough era, you know. This was, this was Thatcher's Britain, especially when I left school. You know, we was, in the cusp, we was in the cusp of recession. There wasn't a lot of opportunities for people from my estate. And we were all tied with the same brush, whether we were criminal or not. As far as the police were concerned in our area, and a lot of the people outside of us, we, we were scum. We were from Woolwich Common. And we suffered a lot of bullying at the hands of the police. And, and we would get arrested for things we hadn't even done or... Uh, I had friends that would plant cannabis on them or something and say, well, if you don't tell us what's going on in the estate, you're getting arrested for it. They had all these tactics back then. It was the old SPG. They were called the Special Patrol Group. They used to um, patrol our estate, and there would be a van full of police. There would be, like, ten police in the van. And they would literally pull on the estate, pull us all over, sometimes give us a punch or something, find it funny. Um, So we were sort of our options were limited and i often say this um margaret thatcher's way of investing in our future was by building belmarsh prison which was just down the road from where we lived and the police used to tell us we can't wait for that to open because you're all going to be in there and that and that's pretty much (laughs) what happened (laughs) that's a very
2: interesting way of putting it uh, ray thanks thanks for that I want to ask you about your fascination with guns now, because uh, as I remember it, all all young boys certainly uh, were interested in guns, or bows and arrows, or yeah. catapults, anything in fact that could be a yeah a weapon, um, or not so much a weapon always, but something which had power in it, and um, and yet of course mostly. We didn't follow it up beyond making a bow and arrow from a stick and a piece of string or borrowing somebody's air gun or something like that. Air guns, of course, were totally fascinating. But um, so how did your interest and fascination for guns develop? What do you think was driving
0: you? Well, I actually stumbled across guns and firearms almost by accident. What actually happened, we, we, we grew up in a military town, Woolwich, which is, I uh, don't know if you know Woolwich at all, but it was a series, there was a lot of army barracks in Woolwich. Army barracks, housing estates, and, and that's pretty much what Woolwich was. Um, Woolwich became quite awash with firearms in the early 90s, and you know where most of them come from? war tro- War trophies from the first Gulf War in 1991. In the first Gulf War, 1991, lots of soldiers brought back firearm trophies. Uh, deactivated, they would take the firing pin out. They were allowed to bring them back. Then they'd get back. The pins would be reinserted, and they would be sold. And like Woolwich just become awash with firearms. It is, it's it's quite a mad mad thing, really. And also with the uh, the building of uh, Disneyland Paris and a lot of the workforce working in Germany people used to go from our area and work at Disneyland and in Germany and they used to bring back firearms in their toolboxes, believe it or not. They used to bring back little derringers which were little 2-2, uh, little snub-nosed derringers. They were only like this big and they used to put them in putty and bring them back and sell them because there was a market for them. But, so I sort of stumbled across them because they, they was quite freely available back then. But we had a fascination, I think I had a fascination at a young age with the act of... Um, a sort of armed robbery. And the reason being is because I came from an area where the people that we looked up to, the older generation, was was the people that were robbing the security vans and whatever else, because they used to, I mean, it was criminally, it was the ultimate goal, wasn't it, to do that one job and get that amount of money which would set you up for life, which it, it never ever did any of them people and it never would have us. but. You sort of aspired to that because you had nothing else to aspire to be. You were caught in the criminal trap. You were you were you were tarred that way. You felt that was your lot. Well I did at the time. And you did and I and I aspired to be like them people, but we never were them people. And what actually happened at the back end of 1988 I think it was nineteen eighty eight, eighty nine, three people from our estate got shot by police, two all robbing the same security van, two got shot dead by the police and my third friend as he turned to run to the getaway car the police shot him in the back so it was pretty much an execution on the police's part, that's how it was back then. And People think when I say that they, they think oh you can't say that, do your research. Douglas Hurd was the Home Secretary at the time, and he ordered the police a shoot-to-kill policy because to bring the armed robbery rate down. So what happened is the more organised armed robbers, uh, sort of, they carried on, uh, and but the 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 crazy people like like us and our little crew, we never progressed to that point because we wasn't, we were desperate and chaotic and and. and but we wasn't organised like them because the police had put a stop to it with their shoot-to-kill policy but the firearms were like i say readily available um and back then you know i can only say with hindsight is is that it didn't they did make you feel empowered and i hate guns i hate all all weapons and the message i would ever say to anyone having been someone who's held firearms and held loaded firearms. You may think you're in control of that gun, but that gun is in control of you. You are not in control of that weapon. You know, it's an extension of self. Hurt people hurt people. And I can say this from spending a lot of time in maximum security prisons. And I know one particular friend who shot dead a Securi corps van driver whilst committing the act of armed robbery in Manchester. And I said to him, why did you do it? And And you know he had no answer. he didn't set out that day to kill that security guard. He almost said that gun went off by itself. you know it was just an automatic thing because I've been asked this when I've done other media stuff. Would you have shot someone during the act of armed robbery i can't I, I would never have set out intentionally to, but I can also say there's no way I could say whether I wouldn't have done with an adult head you know and that's why. You know, there's a reason why police officers, military people, they have extensive training before they put these things in their hands. But people on the streets, be it a knife, be it a gun, you know, if you've got a damaged person and they're holding that sort of instrument of death, it's never going to end well, is it? You know, and I can say that, you know, with, with experience.
2: Well, it's very interesting what you're saying because it sounds as if what you're suggesting is that um, yeah, holding a, uh, a firearm somehow uh, elicits or provokes a kind of psychological process whereby one feels uh, both more powerful and more enabled to exercise power in a particular way. Yeah. Well, that sounds quite primitive, it sounds as if it's almost a primitive level reaction
0: most definitely and I mean I look back now and it's some of my my deepest shame and why I am quite instrumental in in terms of active engagement and rehabilitation and as you know I give talks and uh, and, and whatever else on on crime and and I'm very mindful of the victims and at the time I wasn't because like I say hurt people hurt people and when you're in that damaged place, you know, you you commit these terrible acts and you, uh, you have no fault or regard for your victims, it's only looking back now, you know, we were actually quite, you know, really quite menacing at what we'd done because you become experienced when you commit robbery, I mean, When you get people who run into, uh, say, uh, for example, a bank and shout, like you see on the movies, this is a hold-up, this is a robbery, that's actually quite Captain Caveman, quite sort of amateurish. But when you hone your art, it's actually more menacing. And I've heard this in a victim statement when I've been convicted of an armed robbery. Uh, And um, a victim said, what was so menacing is he, he was so polite and so friendly. It's like you don't need to be menacing if you have enough, if you command enough authority with that weapon. If it's an extension of self, the people are more scared and intimidated that way. Which is not, I'm not making it, I'm not making it right. But you know, having known plenty of armed robbers who have done so, you know, I've 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 seen the impact it's had on some people. It's pushed victims into alcoholism. You know, I read a, a statement once um, where where somebody ran into a post office and the the um, the teller behind the counter actually wet themselves you know it, it, it's, it's it's a horrific dare I say disgusting crime. It's something I I have deep shame that I perpetrated them acts in the past you know it's a disgusting crime
1: how you are you clearly in touch with with the impact on on victims of experiencing mm-hmm. that that kind of thing from your from your account. How do you think you disconnected and switched off from that when you? Because of, I'm assuming you weren't dwelling on those sorts of things as you were carrying out No. Boundaries. Well,
0: I think, like I say, I, I've had the experience of, the, of therapy, etc. But I say this to people: conscience becomes a fierce pursuer. People who have lived that life, unless you are a complete total psychopath, which I which I which I, I mean I'm not an expert, but I believe a very, very small percentage of people actually are, unless you're a complete psychopath, you go away from these acts and, and, and you you do feel bad and you do feel guilty and, and it's sort of like I look on it as a form of self harm. You know, you're 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 in so much pain when you're actually committing these acts yourself because these acts are acts of desperation whichever way whichever way you want to dress it up you know at the time we believed we were in our area we were the chaps the faces we believed that nonsense but the reality of it was in my own case and those around me it was just sheer acts of uh, desperation what we were doing and like I say, the best way I can describe it is hurt people, hurt people. You know, I was hurt so I would hurt other people, and it's it becomes a form of self harm. It's almost like the more violent the crime, the more the more you can just completely be out of touch with any uh, any sort of victim empathy or anything like that. The more you damage yourself, and for me. That propelled me into sort of like uh, a drug abuse, as it were, because I I got to that place where I was in so much pain that I would numb myself and uh, abuse cocaine or abuse alcohol or, or or opiates, which I only really sort of done in prison because of the numbness, the boredom. It's it's all part and parcel of that cycle and you're just caught in it, you know, it's you You know there's a better way but you don't know there's a better way, does that make sense? It's like you, I used to think, I, I reached a point in criminality where I just f- hoped that one day I would wake up and my life would be different but I was so heavily immersed in it and it's, it, it's just that day was never coming, you know, it's pretty much how it was.
2: Yeah, thanks for that, Ray. That's a very uh, interesting reflection. So, thinking about the first time you went into a Young Offenders uh, Institute, how did you find that? Did you learn anything from that experience?
0: Well, uh, I'll say this, you know, I was, uh, and and I'm open and honest about this, especially when I speak to to Young Offenders, I was terrified. I was absolutely terrified. The first time I went into a young offenders institution, sorry, institution, I was only 16 years old and I was not much past 16. And, and, and I ended up in uh, um, Feltham, the first first place I ended up. And you heard all the rumors, you know, that this is a tough place and, you know, there's a fights you're gonna get this, that. And, and, you know, I wasn't this big, tough kid. It was all an act that I'd learned and masks. But the worst thing that could have happened to me, best thing at the time, but looking back with hindsight, the worst thing is because I come from an estate and and you know so many people on your estate, when I got into Feltham, I already knew loads of people or I knew their cousins or their brothers. And and because a lot of people from my particular estate had quite formidable reputations, you get the usual uh, stuff and you walk in prison. Where are you from, mate? you know, the usual, the, the old peacock dance, and where are you from? I'm from Woolwich Common, and they're sort of like a bit weary then, because they don't, and, and then you sort of get pulled in, and, and that's how I met and my criminal circle, and expanded, because you get to meet people with different skills, different expertise, from different areas, and and I sort of got more heavily immersed in the criminal underworld that way. You know, there wasn't Prison back then, I mean I'm going back late like in the eighties was uh again very tough. We'd just come out of the Ballstall system and just I just missed it by a year and we'd gone into the YOI's Young Offenders Institutes. But that didn't mean the prison officers had changed. You know, they were still the Ballstall prison officers with the prison with the Ballstall prison officer mentality, most of them were ex army, ex military and uh these were very harsh places for a young person. And I think people like me and a lot of other fellas that I know from that era, it actually quite damaged us. It quite damaged us. We'd already come from broken, unloving homes and to be put into such a harsh, oppressive environment, I think it, I can only say for me, it damaged me and hardened me. And I still carry scars from it today, I feel. From spending um quite a long periods of my young life in them sort of environments, yeah, I mean there was no there was no care i mean i i I suffered from terrible anxiety and panic attacks when I was sixteen seventeen, and I never knew what they were, and I think it's because when, when I left home, I had absolutely no direction. I wasn't heavily, heavily immersed in the criminal world at this time. I was sort of doing petty crime where intervention would have been perhaps possible. But I I suffered from terrible anxiety and panic attacks. And I remember being in Feltham Young Offenders Institution uh, as a young man and getting panic attacks and not knowing what they were but not knowing who to talk to, what what to do. And I remember saying to a prison officer once, I... I, I didn't want to come out myself. I was getting like agoraphobic, and uh, he forced me out of the cell. He said, "Come on, you've got to get out, or your neck, whatever." And it just, just, just total. No, no, no compassion, no, no, nothing. You know, it was just a brutal, harsh regime. You know, and that's how it was. Very, very different to how it is today. You know, but that, that, that hardened me and it hardened me in my resolve against prison, authority, police, judges. You know, I was very attuned as a young man at the injustice of it all. I felt like society was really against me. And in some senses it was, because we saw what went on, we saw we witnessed police corruption. We wish we witnessed corruption in the judiciary from a young age, you know, we were we were young, naive, but we weren't stupid. And we witnessed these things. You know, it's like I, I say it in my book, when the police used to stitch us up for things or used to beat us up for no reason or whatever, you know. Who were you gonna complain to? The police? Do you see what I'm saying? Is we had nowhere to turn bar ourselves and, we, and that hardened that, that criminal code and if you harden the criminal code in someone, you push them deeper into the underworld and deeper into gangland and that's how it was for me and then you're expected to behave in a certain way, whether you're that way or not and the violent crimes I'd done, you know, dare I say it, and people who look at my life and my criminal record will go, oh, you, you're you a horrible, terrible, violent man. No, I wasn't. I'd done terrible, horrible, violent things, but I was, not a, I was not a horrible, violent person. I was just so lost, so entrenched in that criminal world that I behaved in the way that I believed was expected of me. And I can only say that today now, years later, being a, a model member of society, a successful businessman, someone who contributes, someone who does a lot for charity, and I don't sing from the rooftops about it, I'm actually quite a, dare I say it, without trying to sound, I'm a bit of a philanthropist. My, the greatest money I spend is the money I give to good causes, and I do that a lot, and I love doing it, you know. I sponsor some boxing clubs for young kids. and. I give to animal charities and I love doing that stuff and so if you see me today and you look at me there and say well what where's the transition you're either horrible innate violent psychopathic or you're not so for me there's t- two, two totally ends of the pole but you know that side of my life has very much left me so I don't believe I was ever that way I, I just behaved that way You know. Thanks. thanks for that
2: Right, that's that's very helpful because um, it seems to me that what you're saying, well you've said a lot there, but several of the things you've said is that you came out of those YOI's with a lot more contacts and a, a much more familiarisation with that kind of uh, outlaw system.
0: And very bitter, um, very bitter. And bitter. Yeah.
2: Which brings me to the other thing I was going to say was that I think in some ways you're talking about the other meaning of the word outlaw, which yeah. perhaps is to do with being outside of the protective and caring functions of a of a social world. Yeah,
0: yeah.
2: Can I ask you Were you in contact with your siblings at at this time? By this time, did you well, have much contact with them?
0: the irony was my 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 siblings are all law abiding straight people as is my mother as was my father although he died young from alcoholism they were law abiding people you know they were law abiding people my problem was at a young age i fell into the to the you know the estate and the the my peers Became very much my family. That's where I felt accepted. That's where I felt I could communicate to a degree, and you know I couldn't tell people how I felt, but I could sure as hell show them. And in and in the gang sort of way of life, you could do that without without sort of fear of reprisal or anything like that. In the sense of uh, if I was. If I got caught doing something criminally at home when I was young, I would have got whooped for it. You know, that's how it was. And um, yeah, so I just felt propelled to sort. I felt like an alien in my own family. I felt like I'd been dropped from a spaceship. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. I didn't feel at home. I didn't feel it was a place of sanctuary. Uh, I explained. I didn't even feel I had a place of sanctuary in my own bedroom at night time because my brother was quite bullying you know he was older than me two years older than me so i never had any sanctuary at home so i sort of left home mentally from mentally i'd left home at a very young age but i actually left home at 16 you know but um apathy had kicked him long long before you know are you in touch with any any of them now I, i i am I wouldn't say I'm close to any of my family, which is quite sad. I am my own children, and I do speak to my family, of course I do, and I, and I love them, and my mum, I love my mum, but I find my mum very difficult. There's a lot of scars there from childhood, where my mum was very unloving and very cold, so there's a lot of scars there still. So I, I, it's not, I don't feel like even now as an adult of 50 years of age, if I was ever in... Real trouble in life. It, it's not somewhere I feel like I could turn for emotional support or anything like that. You know, it's. I do feel, and I've always felt quite alone in the world. Like quite alone, you know, and and, and I think, from a young age, you know, I felt like you you have to rely on yourself, and that's that's real it's quite sad when you when looking back that as a young man when I was going through all these problems when I was getting involved in crime when I was suffering from I would say mental illness because I was suffering from chronic anxiety and panic attacks which is a clear depressive illness that I had absolutely nowhere to turn with it you know and and all I'd done was just act out and and became the way I was you know
2: yeah well I agree with you Ray I think it is very sad, and I, I have to say, I found a lot of your book was quite sad. It's written in a very kind of dynamic and racy style, but of course, a lot of it is tragic.
0: Um, there's a um, lot, of, there's, there's so much I couldn't go into depth about, especially being a child, because you know, I looked at a lot of that stuff in therapy, but I had a very sad, lonely. Childhood, without going into too much depth, you know, I felt very sad, very alone, and you know, to, to in a nutshell, you know, I, I used to sometimes watch telly from behind the settee. I used to hide behind the settee and look out because I was, you know, my stepdad was quite quite aggressive towards me, and my mum was quite unloving, and then you know, I was it was just just fear in my household. It was just, yeah, it was quite it was a horrible, not a nice loving kind childhood to to put it bluntly.
2: Which probably does yeah connect with the the next thing I'd like to talk about because in your book you clearly seem to link crime uh, with your drug taking um, and you've really struggled with this over the years and the book is graphically honest about the struggles that you had uh the relapses that you had and and then how you got back onto your feet again um yeah. and it's quite painful reading it um can you tell us a bit about your drug taking and how you've
0: coped with it well i've i've been clean now for a number of years i mean I'm i'm nearly nearly nine years clean of all substances i don't drink don't touch drugs anything but like I say, at a young age, I mean, it was the acid house era, wasn't it? When I, when I was like 18, 19, it was acid house, like 1988 or whatever, and uh, we experimented. You know, we used to have cannabis and ecstasy and, and whatever else, but from a young age, drugs didn't agree with me. Uh, they, they sort of made me a little bit, uh, how do I say it? Um, well, suffering from anxiety and depression you know, then they're, they're not a good cocktail, first and foremost. And and I and I abused drugs because because it was a form of sort of self medicating. I know that now. I know that now. That's why I was uh, uh, abusing drugs. And I look at drugs and drug abuse for me as a form of slow suicide. It's almost like you're committing suicide one pill at a time, one fix at a time, or whatever. And a lot of my drug abuse actually stemmed from prison, and a lot of the, the, um, the, the prison I done. Like I mean, I spent many many years in prison, and we would we would abuse drugs in prison because there was nothing else to do. It was just sheer boredom, and at the time availability, drugs used to be freely available in prison, you know, and. Um, I abused drugs, especially the the sort of opiates and things like that. I, I abused them in prison. You know, and when I would get out of prison, I would use the recreational substances because even when you had done, um, say when we committed criminal acts and we had what we would call a touch and you get a big lump of money, you always had this vision that if you got a big lump of money, let's say, for example, £10,000, I'm going to use that money to sort my life out. I'm going to... But you never do. What you do is you end up going off and going to pubs, drinking, having uh, well, well feathered, meaning friends or whatever that never buy a drink. You you sort of lap that up because you're the you're getting a bit of attention, and you end up having cocaine and everything else. That's how it was. It was a cultural thing for me in in my area. You know, dr- drugs again, like, like. Like they, they were just so freely available, and it was, can it was just the norm. Everyone done it, or at least, at least everyone in my circle did. You know, I didn't give it a lot of thought until it started causing me <coughs> immense problems in life. Can I just shut this door? Because my there's someone at the door. My two little shihtzus again are getting mad. Sorry, <laughs> I've got to shut this door. Oh, apologies. <laughs> yeah, and. Um, yeah, like I say, it just it just became the norm. But then, for me, I started uh, to develop psychological problems as a result. They was already there anyway, but the, you know the drugs only ever amplified that. You know, and I think especially depending on your personality type, but my own personality type, when I took things like cocaine and things like that, they made me psychotic. With with hindsight, I can say that you know I became very volatile, very dangerous when I took these substances. But you still felt powerless, and you still you still continued to do so. You know, yeah, never a good, never a good cocktail.
2: No, I mean, I think in your book, uh, you describe uh, how you began to feel all powerful, omnipotent, that uh, that you knew best, and you could work your way through anything through, through drugs, which, which must be a very powerful sort of feeling to, to have. How did, you, how did you manage to
0: lose the habit of doing that? Well, to start to grow up emotionally, and for me, that was the therapeutic journey that I was privileged to do. That was the start of it. But to grow up emotionally, you know, drugs and drug abuse is very much uh, a head thing. There's a reason why people say uh, I want to get out of my head because it's it's the, the the crazy head. That's what we're trying to numb when we when we abuse drugs. And you also have heard the term with drugs, I've got to get a fix. Well, what is it we're trying to fix? You know, when I explained it like this, it was like a massive hole in the soul for me. Remember I said from a young age, you know, I felt lonely, frightened, afraid. So I chose to live life in my head. And any emotions that came up, and, you know I wasn't prepared to deal with them wasn't prepared to look at them and it's just numb amount numb amount numb amount and 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 people that do that tend to go psychotic and behave psychopathically because you're just so out of touch with your own emotional world and i think for me the acknowledgement of the emotional world and to learn and grow with that stuff has took away for me the need to Get out of my head, so I'd choose not to, even if I could today. I would rather go through life feeling than thinking because thinking is just the path to destruction for people like me. But to go through a world with uh, some sort of emotional, to feel my way through the world, as it were, you know, it, it, it's been for me the best, the best thing because I found and I continue to find the person I always wanted to be, you know, which is quite a nice, kind, caring, compassionate person, and most importantly, I can say hand on heart, someone who has immense empathy today. Immense empathy. I couldn't do the things today that I used to do. And I look back at some of the things I've done, and I sort of, it's almost like, I think, who was it? Who who was it? You know, who was that person? I say in my book, don't I, I say that, I felt like at times I was possessed by an evil spirit. It's like I would do things and afterwards go, why did I do that? Or how did I do that? Or think I didn't even know I was capable of doing that. That's how bad the, 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 the compulsion and propulsion system in someone living that way can be, you know? And it's the same, doesn't it? Like you, You can't kid a kidder. And the one person, like, fellow cons can't kid fellow cons. And I've spent a lot of time in high security estates and with a lot of people that have committed acts of murder and whatever else. And if you read about these people, you would think, oh, they But when you actually get to know them and see them, you know, I wasn't that dissimilar from them. Just for them, it came out in the act of murder. For me, it came out in the act of of um, repeat offending and repeat violent offending as well. And it's, it's sad, you know, sad. Yes. Thank you,
2: Ray. Um, can I ask you about your boxing? Because you yeah. have a boxing career. Well, um, let me t- let me finish what I'm going to say. I uh, there's a, there's actually a there's a thirteen or fourteen minute clip of you boxing on YouTube. But yeah. I don't know if you're aware of it. I think it was in 2013. Yeah. And uh, Uh, it seemed like a very tough way to spend your life Ray particularly at that time because you weren't a young man were you so how did you manage to look after your body here and be what must have been a sort of elite athlete
0: whilst you led such an unhealthy lifestyle (laughs) well what happened is when I when I when I did get out of, of prison in two thousand and seven it was, so I'd got out after a long long many years inside, I went I used to box when I was young, I boxed at school. I went to a place called Saint Peter's which had an amateur boxing academy and, and, and I loved my boxing and, and I, I loved the discipline regimented life lifestyle. And when I got out I just started to train again, do a bit of boxing training. And then uh, I got involved in a boxing club and um, one thing led to another. And then I started to box again on on what was called the unlicensed circuit, you know, because I couldn't get a boxing license because of my criminal record. But, um, yeah, I started to box on the unlicensed circuit, you know, and I became quite good at it and I loved it. And I stayed clean through that period and whereas I think for me it became a bit of a substitute sort of addiction as it were because I was living clean at the time like you know I wasn't using drugs I wasn't drinking I was just going to training I'd go to work come back train and i boxed and box on the unlicensed circuit and won like their version of the British title and yeah I loved that lifestyle at, at the time but that's going back Quite a bit now, and I and I boxed on on and off again there for about four or five years, and had quite a few competitive bouts. Yeah, I loved it, loved it, but it was it filled a hole, but it didn't address the issues. If that makes sense, I still had a lot of lot more work to do internally and emotionally.
1: It's interesting it's interesting that you liken it to uh, you know an addiction because it does seem as though maybe the excitement risk-taking danger yeah. of being present there through quite a lot of your life and boxing perhaps was a legitimate way to to achieve that but there's quite a strong association between boxing and violent crime isn't there so a significant number of boxes of former boxers have killed their partners for example do you think boxing in some people's case boxing hardens people in a way that makes crime more likely or do you think that generally people who box might have also faced more childhood adversity and trauma than the average person are more likely to fall into your kind of history than have a a nice happy childhood and then box well historically you could say
0: that couldn't you because i mean boxing in my experience tends to be like more sort of inner city sport doesn't it my most, most um, people that get involved tend to come from the tougher communities, but in my own sort of uh, experience and seeing the work it actually does in communities, it's it teaches discipline, commandership. I mean, the boxing clubs, especially the couple that I'm still involved with, they they do fantastic work with the young kids, especially... Uh, you know I sponsor one one boxing club it's for the charity change your knife, put down your knife, which is an anti knife charity and we don't even they don't even charge the children to come in and train off the street so kids that are economically and socially deprived they're going in there now and they're getting a bit of guidance and and if they're good boxing coaches which at this particular gym they are fantastic coaches, they're actually steering these kids into further education college and employment and training and all these sorts of things and you've got to ask yourself is that a bad thing you know i don't think i think you know in my own experience knowing a lot of boxers and where boxers tend to be the least violent people and although you could say well some ex-boxers have killed their partners or so have it technicians so of solicitors and all sorts and police officers and in all sorts of professions you know that stuff goes on I I I think that boxing is 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 very much I very much fall into the sport aspect but I'm around the whole the the psychology of it the mental side of boxing and uh, I think it teaches discipline and self-control very much so
1: Mike Tyson talks about boxers being trained for a kind of war. You know that need to psych yourself up yeah. to to be able to hit your opponent. And he attributes his use of DMT and cannabis as an attempt to soften himself post post boxing. Um, how have you? Was that some, is that something that you can connect with that idea that you might have to harden yourself to box, or did you did you manage that differently?
0: For me, it just came quite quite natural. I think, I I I mean, I was never, although you could look at the, the, the crimes I committed in the past and say, well, you must have been quite aggressive or passive-aggressive. I don't believe I was. And, and and even in boxing, for me, it was more like a game of chess and it was about the skill aspect. And, you know, it's about the art of boxing is to hit and not be hit. You know, I didn't like getting hit, so I'd be quite evasive. And I like the whole, the whole skill of it, pitting your wits against another man in that way it's sort of like the ultimate game of chess but they call a boxing ring it's a it's a very lonely sport so i think it played into that side of me too you know boxers do tend to be quite lonely people and and have difficulties with personal relationships and things like that the boxing ring is a very lonely place it's just you and and someone else pitting your sort of wits and in some senses i suppose risking your life as well you know you, you are risking your life when you step in a boxing ring you know can people do die and you can have some you know you, you, you're getting your brain bashed about it you know it's
1: well that, i think that's a very good point because there are estimates that kind of like 85 percent of boxers end up with um with brain damage don't they or um, yeah. early dementia as a consequence of, of boxing do you think the sporting industry does enough
0: to protect boxers and to support them post-industry? certainly do not. I mean, post, post, uh, I mean, in terms of boxers that have actually retired, no, no, uh, because I'm actively involved in in a lot of groups with ex-boxers and whatever else, and a hell of a lot of ex-boxers. I mean, there's a massive, massive link between ex-boxers and drug abuse and alcoholism and things like that. Massive. I mean, it's frightening how many ex-boxers end up alcoholic or in drug addiction. That's really frightening. But and and where you say about the uh, sort of um, the 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 brain injuries and all that long term, there's a hell of a lot of boxers out there that once they come out of boxing, they can't even they can't even get a career or anything because they are damaged from it. It's slow their words and all sorts. It's yeah, it is. I mean, it's got a lot safer in today's world, but, but when I was young, you know, we didn't wear headgear or anything like that. Now it's a lot safer. They have bigger gloves and and whatever else. The medical fraternity is a lot more professional towards boxing today as well. You know, people have brain scans if you're a licensed boxer and ready, regular medicals, etc., etc. But none of that used to exist, did it? So, And on the unlicensed circuit where I boxed, I mean we were very vulnerable because we didn't have that same protection, you know, with the brain scans and things like that. And I think it damaged me slightly from... Because from, I had 30-odd fights, and it was the heavy sparring. Because you you see the people have the fights, but for every fight you might have sparred two or 300 rounds in a gym with no protection. And, and, you know, so... Yeah, I think it did damage me slightly. I do get... Um, I do struggle a bit. In my memory sometimes now. I don't know if that's from the boxing or, or I say the wrong word to things sometimes. Like I call a shop a different name and, and, and I yeah I and I think that's a little bit of boxing, yeah. Or drug abuse. One of the two.
1: <laughs> well, you you highlighted that that connection in terms of. Drug abuse and alcohol, and and that's quite that's that's not unique to boxing. either is it no. elite athletes when they retire, struggle with that transition into retirement, and going from having a lot of very positive attention and all the thrill and excitement of whatever sport they are. But in boxing, it's very much focused on that one person rather than a team sport where you where you share that and. I wondered how you how you were coping with that because obviously you've had quite a lot of excitement in your life, yeah and then now you've you you've retired from boxing in terms of actively doing that so how how are you getting your excitement now how do you cope? How do you cope and
0: not end up feeling
1: lost without
0: that? I'm still quite involved with it. I actually go once a week and do a little bit of personal training still with a a professional boxing coach, and I do a bit with him, so I still feel like I'm doing something, and and I get involved. I go to a lot of boxing shows and stuff like that, but... um, I think for me, uh, because I'm in business, you know, and i found sort of my vocation in business, and you know, I've actually become quite successful in what I do, you know, I, I, I own, own and run my own scaffold company, and I've really, over the last five years, gone from strength to strength with it, and it takes up most of my time, you know, and um, I find that I don't really have much time to, to do a lot else nowadays, I'm just, I, I work a lot, and and I think that sort of filled that void, as it were. It's sort of, it almost like there's a desire in me, because I messed up so much of my life, especially the first half, to sort of like try and make something of the second half. And I've sort of matured perhaps too late, but I've matured now to a place where I'm sort of thinking long-term as opposed to short-term. You know, I'm I'm, I'm 50 now and I'm thinking... You know, what have I got, 15 years left perhaps of working or whatever and I want to amass a little something for retirement or whatever and I'm thinking long term, which is the ultimate um, sign of maturity in me because I never felt like that, never thought like that and I don't believe anyone criminally ever did think about the future. You live very much for the here and now. Everything's about instant gratification and you don't worry about tomorrow. You don't save, you just whatever you get, you think, well, I'll just get, I'll do the, you know, they say that easy come, easy go. It's you get one lot of money, you think, well, once that's gone, I'll do something else. It's just you really do live in that crazy immature way where you're never thinking about the future, you're never thinking long term. Whereas today I am.
1: It sounds like you might be getting some excitement out of entrepreneurship as well. You know, the fact that you've built the
0: successful business that that feels like an achievement well that and and my writing you know the fact that i discovered i could write and i've and i've had the book published and i've written another one and you know that's fantastic you know the the act of writing a book Absolutely. i know that you i think you've wrote one i know david has it's for me it was very cathartic and i sort of completely lost myself when i wrote my autobiography i loved it because i wrote that book myself you know and um I love it you know I wish I had more time to do it but it doesn't pay the bills you know I'm not a JK Rowling if it paid the bills I would do it full time and and I'd really find my vocation but I have to work and uh, you know I do that in my spare time and yeah I mean it really really does um, work very much has filled a void in me because I've wasted a lot of my life not working you know yeah
2: You've given us a lot already, Ray, but I want a bit more, if I may. Mm. Um, you've you've um, talked about maturing, um, mature. You, well, you, the way you put it was maturing later than you might have wanted to. Yeah. But but I think in your book you describe very powerfully how, for you, recovery wasn't a one-off thing. It was something you had to kind of get back into, time and time again. Actually, yeah. and I, I wonder if you could tell us a bit about that that journey. What 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 started things to change for you?
0: Well, I think what really started things to change for me, obviously, when I received that long, long sentence. But for me, very much so, the the journey began for me in two thousand and three. Right when when I went to when I went into I, I made the decision to go to Grendon and and do some actually look at myself and I think that's very much how the journey started for me you know I didn't get it sort of first time there's been peaks and troughs and it's almost like I had to make the mistakes to realise to sort of like for the things I learned to kick in as it were so when I came out of Grendon you know I thought I had it cracked and I made a few mistakes along the way but it was only through making them mistakes I think I hit another level of sort of self-awareness and, and sort of recognised that some things, there's factors out of your control if you, don't, if you don't work it out you'll act it out does that make sense? and, 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 I, and I really had to sort of my mindset sort of changed so I became quite introspective so now I know when I don't feel right there's something going on and I don't have to act out I can work through it or communicate with people. And for me, I've had, you know, I don't attribute none of my rehabilitation to to my thinking or, or, or personal willpower, or anything like that. I attribute to the fact I've had some great teachers along the way and some great support once I became open-minded and receptive to that. And I've made mistakes, but I've learned that, you know, that you have to reach out. No one's an island. You can get Support in the strangest of places, and that's how it's came for me, you know. And I've had, um, I've had some fantastic support along the way, and 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 learned a lot of valuable lessons, you know.
1: So it sounds like you've got a really healthy attitude towards mistakes, though, because I think people can often end up feeling quite flawed, can't they? You know, yeah. literally knocked over. By it and and then feel like what's the point in continuing? Whereas it sounds like you decided to make lemonade out of lemons yeah. and take the learning out of the situation so that you could be stronger next time.
0: Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't um, want anyone to make some of the mistakes I've made because in my own uh, instances, some of the mistakes have proved nearly fatal, and um, or could have ended up a lot worse for for others. Like you know. But um, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I've, I've learned the hard way, the hard way, you know, the, the real, the real, real sort of hard, painful lessons, you know. Yeah. And I continue to learn, like we all do. Yeah.
2: So we've been introduced to your Shih Tzu. Have you got yeah. one or two?
0: Two, two, my babies. I've got mother and son
1: yeah brilliant
0: they're, they're my world I, I adore my dogs and I, i've always loved animals i'm just big softy like that with animals i don't know so sometimes i think some people see how i am with my little dogs and they think i'm like like, like the bond villain with a little cat like every psychopath tends to have a small small little cuddly dog don't they but I, yeah i've got two little shih tzus one's got ribbons in her hair i, I love them i love them to bits they're my world and um I think animals for me, because I'm I you know I share my yard with an animal charity. It's a, and I'm really actively involved in that. And I think animals have taught me a hell of a lot about myself and that getting in touch with that soft, kind, care, nurturous place in me and whatever else. I speak about it in my book with my my budgie that I had in Grendon. I you know I had a budgie we go in in Grendon for for two years while I was there. And I learned, and I really loved that budgie, you know, and I and I learned to adore him. And, and when I left Grendon, and and I went to uh, another prison, uh, I wasn't going anywhere unless I took my budgie with me. I I would you know, and I, and I took my budgie with him with me, and he died not long after I got out of prison, and I buried him in a in a pot, and he was yellow, so I put yellow flowers in there, and it, and it grew to these yellow flowers. So it's, there's a lot of significance in me with animals and I feel a deep connection and bond with them. And I'm very good with animals. I love them. I adore them. If I had my, my, in my ideal world, I would, I would work with animals, you know, if, if I could make a living out of it, I'd love to. You know, I love animals.
2: And do you still have contact with Sam, who you speak about very fondly in your book?
0: Sadly, no. Me, me and Sam parted ways, uh, about six seven years ago and i've been in a healthy relationship with with another woman now for over five years i've got a stepdaughter we've got our own home we've got a family life you know i'm I'm not i'm, I'm far from perfect but it's it, it's uh you know i'm learning about that stuff relationships and you know i think that's where the damage rears its head especially people who have spent and i speak to a lot of other prisoners that I'm still in contact with who have spent years in prison. Because we're quite lonely, isolated people and we spent long periods by ourselves, it's quite difficult to feel that contact sometimes with another human being and, and be intimate for say per se and, and make them feel loved and wanted. It's not that we don't love it's like with my own partner. I love and adore her, but I find it hard to show that. You know, it's it's doesn't come natural for me it doesn't come easy doesn't mean i don't feel it but the actual expression of it doesn't come easy you know i provide for my family very well uh materialistically but she often says i'm quite cold and i don't mean to be it's just i don't know no different and i and i'm learning that stuff still learning you know it's yeah but in terms of being um you know you couldn't she couldn't feel safer in my company and 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 like you know women children all that you look at my past, you would think oh you who would want to be around someone like me who's lived such a violent, horrible life, but you know no one could be safer in my company, and that's the truth you know and I give that off and 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 yeah.
2: Well, it's been a real pleasure talking with you, Ray. And then, and I have to say, you know, you're so honest that it's a slightly bittersweet pleasure. Um, Thank you. Which which I think is a good thing. Um, now, you mentioned you've got another book. Yeah. I think you mentioned you've got another book. Yeah. Is that coming up for publication? What's well, happening with that? Yeah,
0: hopefully. I mean, I wrote Outlaw, which is my autobiography, which is always about, it was never about anything other than. Uh, to try and carry a slight message of hope, a bit of a, a like a redemption story. Um, but the second book I wrote, it's called A Smuggler's Roulette, and it's about the three years that I was involved in the the smuggling world. Because I always knew there were, there was too much to tell in such a short book. Because uh, that was really much a defining sort of period in my criminality, as it were so I wanted to write a book about that again not to glamorise crime far from it but just to tell the story uh, a bit of a social narrative so there's a lot of information in there that people wouldn't unless you was involved in that world you wouldn't understand so I thought I would get that out there and it was I was just writing it as a little project but what happened is i wrote the first 10 chapters and somebody a proofreader from Virgin read it and said oh my god this book's amazing and they're there they want it so it's sort of when they release it or not it's up to them because i'm contractually obliged to virgin so it, it, we've got to wait and see now because of this stuff that's going on with potential film or or the docudrama about my life uh we have to wait now because they wouldn't want to release it and spoil this and they say yeah, you're at their mercy but I've got to finish it. I'm being pressed to finish it. I've still got a few chapters left to go, but again, I'm working, it's trying to you you know yourself as a, as an author, it's hard sometimes to find the time to do these things. It's yeah.
1: We're really grateful to you for giving us so much time today. No, it's, it's a been privilege. really, really interesting talking to you and the fact that you've been so candid as well and speaks you know, speak with so much honesty about about your experiences hopefully you'll come back and talk to us when you've released your, your next book that's a book. pleasure
0: Naomi and I know David's told me briefly that you've done a lot of great work with offenders and, and I respect you for that and in and, and terms of David it's my way of repaying my debt because David was one of the people who was quite instrumental in my own start of my own Rehabilitative journey without getting into detail so yeah no it's my way of repaying, re, repaying my debt of gratitude always an honour thank you
2: and you gave me a mention in your book, which I thought was very kind and generous of you.
0: Well, had you not have... Um, you actually assessed me, if you don't mind me saying, and had you have not progressed me onto a wing, who knows where I would be now? I honestly believe I would have probably ended up in Broadmoor, because that's where I was headed. You know, I was that way in prison. Um, prior to coming to Grendon, I'd had a, an outburst in Dovegate, and I'd attacked... I Regrettably, attacked two prisoners, and um, when I was in segregation in in Long Lart in Long Lartin, which is maximum security prison, as you know, um, psychiatrist that came down to the segregation tapped his pen on the side and said a signature from me and a signature from him, and you're off to Broadmoor. And that's like that's the reality, and you know that's what could have happened to me. So thank God it didn't. I'd still be there now. <laughs>
2: Okay. well, we'll look forward to the film and we'll look forward to the next book.
0: Fingers crossed. Cheers, Ray. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for your time. Take care.